1: Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly hoyde joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzhanovskaya, On tonight's episode, we'll discuss anti-racism and medicine, addressing aggressions, and beyond with Dr. Consuelo Wil- Wilkins. Before we get started with that,
2: Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. We had a great conversation with our guest, Dr.
1: Wilkins, tonight. We cover um, specific approaches towards anti-racism, including things that you can kind of have at the interpersonal level when discussing things with your team, how to address microaggressions. And then also, if you're considering working on anti-racism projects within your institution, Dr. Wilkins has some very concrete
2: steps to think about starting that process. I agree, Molly. It was pretty informative to think about how we moved inward to outward in terms of examining ourselves and also the structures and systems that lead to racism. And our guest tonight is incredible, Dr. Consuelo Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is a principal investigator of three NIH-funded research centers and is responsible for a portfolio of programs in response to the institution's strategic direction for inclusion and diversity. She's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, widely recognized leader in health equity research and the science of community engagement. So, without further ado, let's get to it.
1: Well, Dr. Wilkins, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, do you mind if we call you Consuelo for our show? Oh, please. Well, I'd we'd love, love to just get to know you a little bit better with some rapid fire questions. Do you have a. A one liner to describe yourself and maybe include something that's kind of outside of the world of medicine?
0: Well, you know, in my mind, I'm a basketball player and a chef, even though I haven't really played basketball in a (laughs) long time. And I don't cook that often anymore. Those, I mean, that's who I see myself. I'm like like a basketball player. That is awesome. most of the time. And I also advocate for health equity. So I'm like a health equity advocate. But, you know, you know I would just carry around my basketball if I could <laughs> and challenge people just randomly. Like, do you have your sneakers? Just, I,
2: just jump on the court. I love that. The random <laughs> yes. one-on-ones are amazing. Exactly. And then you'll be like, exactly. oh, should we get a snack later? I can cook something.
0: <laughs> yes, I did bring some, you know. Uh, gourmet uh meals, you know, snacks you, know, you can choose from the containers here with my <laughs> initial on them. Amazing. And
2: we can discuss Good. health equity as we're snacking. <laughs> That's Yes. Well, on that yes. on that note, um Consuelo, is there a book that you feel every physician should read?
0: I wouldn't say there's a specific book, but I do think that uh physicians should read a book or books that are written from the lens of a patient. And I think that hearing the perspective, reading about the perspective of people with lived experiences um, are really very important. And I think that's um, definitely the case for physicians.
2: And Consuela, do you have a book that you would plug in that realm or that one that has really touched you recently or that you learned something from?
0: Well, if I were plugging a book right now, (laughs) Though, I would say if you haven't read *Cast* by Isabel uh, Wilkerson, you should definitely read that. Because I think from the standpoint of going beyond sort of that interpersonal aspects of, you know, humanism, uh, which I think that patient-centered or patient voice brings, you know, understanding the higher level um, and thinking about, you know, categorization people and... And how these structures are really often so challenging to um, get past. I would say, you know, Cass has been a book that recently helped shift—not uh, so much shift, I guess. I would say but more put words around or give words to um, things that I have thought a lot about.
1: She's a wonderful author, and it just, yeah, amazing book. And I think really puts puts such a highlight on how racism. Is damaging to the whole society and to everyone, and our casteism, Absolutely. as she calls it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, do you have a favorite failure that you learned something from that you'd feel comfortable sharing here?
0: You know, early on in my career, I was developing a study. Um, and, you know, I knew that I wanted to study falls in older adults and minority adults. And I, had in my mind that I knew how to do this without bringing in the voices of people. So now I've been around these minority patients who've fallen, I've talked to them and, you know, I, I really just thought I was going to design this study and it was going to be perfect. Um, And I still didn't, you know, follow what I have learned to do all the time now is, you know, bring those voices to the table and the design and the iteration of it and, and certainly the implementation of it. And, you know, I, again, thinking that I'm an expert, I know how to do this, people haven't done it right. Um, I failed miserably at, you know, recruiting people. Actually, you know, I got people interested in the study, but then those key pieces of actually getting them to participate, to come in, to share information, they were like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound like something we would do. That sounds like only information that you're interested in. And that was, I think, a very important failure for me early on in realizing that I may know a little bit more (laughs) about population populations than others, but that's not enough.
2: I think getting that perspective, just like you mentioned, in terms of the book advice is key from folks who are uh, living with that experience. And then is there a piece of advice that you have received as a learner, the best piece of advice, Consuelo, that you would like to share with our listeners, maybe as a teacher, in your career, just in general?
0: Um, I think I would say best piece of advice probably goes back to you know something that my my grandmother told me, you know, early on in life was, you know, that there's a, a lot, people have a lot of knowledge. You just don't always understand how they see. They don't. You don't always understand the knowledge, the information. And so, you know, taking that step back to really accept wisdom in all of its different forms um, is something that I certainly have learned to appreciate. Over time, this different way, different ways of thinking about things. And along those lines, I I would say um, I've also been told that we have to be able to accept multiple truths. And I think that's a part of the different perspectives and and what you bring to the table uh, and moving beyond who's right and who's wrong um, to uh, developing more shared language, common language, systems of meaning making, and, and all of those things to move, uh, work forward.
1: Excellent advice. It's, yeah, I, I think, you know, remaining humble within your own perspective and appreciating that the world is much bigger than than your
0: one lived experience. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Humility, sometimes those lessons uh, are learned really That's, that's hard, uh, difficult lessons. Uh, to learn, but you don't forget them typically.
2: Consuelo, I feel yeah. like we, I'm already sensing that we're going to learn a lot today. Um, just given the the mind blowing um, aspect of your advice and the and the failures as well. Molly, do you have any picks of the week that you wanted to share? Um,
1: I do. So my pick of the week is um, my amazing co host Ira I had a recent publication called "Factors Associated with Career in Primary Medicine: Continuity Clinic Experience Matters." Um, And we'll link to that in the show notes and just a super interesting review of um, residents' experiences. And I think we work in primary care and I love anything that encourages future primary care doctors to come into the pipeline
2: because we need more of us. Thanks so much, Molly. Hey,
0: congratulations, Erin. Thank That's you, Gonzalo. Thank
2: you. I appreciate it. It was a really fun project. And I think our goal in primary care is really to have as many converts into our world. So I think that was a, the lesson I took from that project was just how important those relationships are in clinic uh, and the mentorship that happens um, can really kind of make, make, the, make or break the decision for someone to pursue primary care careers. And so you have a pick of the week? I do. It's actually, um, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm going to show you um, what I'm sitting on is this exercise <laughs> ball. And I will tell you, it's probably not, uh, or in 2020 pandemic time, I think everyone was like, oh, I'm going to sit on an exercise ball and it's going to be healthy version of sitting if I have to sit all day. And then we learned that actually like engaging your core for this much time is probably not the best idea. And there's also a chance that, like I'm doing right now, you could fall backwards, but I will say it's a nice added kind of variety to sitting in a chair to standing um to having this exercise ball kind of engage my core because there's a lot of people who are out there saying that sitting is the new smoking. So I'm trying to kind of push back on that and one of the things that I've found helpful is this exercise ball. I like it.
0: <laughs> and you're pretty steady. You're not I you're have, not rolling um, around too much. I have my I want to show off my little Oh, show to us. Sit on. If I'm not taking up no. too much time. So I have this. Ooh. That
1: is is, so it's like a stool. Kind of
0: a, yeah, it's like a stool, but it's not steady. Whoa, uh, it rolls? Like a wobble. So ah. Yeah, so you have to. It's not a ball. Like, so that's the fancier of ball. It. It's, like, it's the upgrade oh. of the ball. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. So I have it. I mean, I have my standing and the desk. And so... Sometimes I want to sit, and then this is what I have oh, to do. Cool. And so I'm like, oh, that's more. It's harder than standing. It Let totally stand is. <laughs> it totally
2: is. I love that. I think that yeah. the goal yeah. is for us to just yeah. keep moving, or like you know, not stay- not sit, or stand for yes. you know an hour or longer, but really just yeah. shift. So I an, love that. An hour is yeah. an hour is a goal. I'm I'm at like a four hour point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to get those get those blood vessels moving. Yes, <laughs> or the blood cells. <laughs> Well, now that we're
1: all stabilized, yes. course course tight. <laughs> yes. Let's jump into a case to help us uh, talk about the topic of anti-racism as it applies to the medical education world. Case one from Cash Lake Memorial, Jackie is in her second year attending as a hospitalist on the teaching service. The events in this country in the past few years have made her feel more motivated to make changes in her teaching practices to dismantle racism in medicine and improve health disparities. She wants to learn more about how to address this with her team. So some some basic questions to start out, um, how do you talk to your team about the concept of race? Um, and then for example, like if a learner includes the patient's race in a presentation or a written
0: note, do you discuss that with the team? I do. I mean, I, I, my first question always is, why was it important to know what the individual's race or ethnicity was? And you, we can do the hard line of, Race, ethnicity are never important in the, um, in the intro of a patient, but occasionally it is. I mean, if you have uh, a person who identifies as white and um, that person has sickle cell anemia, then yeah, that might be important to share early on. But typically, if someone is presenting and they talk about an individual's race or ethnicity, I asked them to shift that to the social history because if we agree that race is a social construct then put it in the social history and be sure to tell me that that is how the individual identified in their words not OMB or federal categories or even what is predefined in the EHR I want to know how did that individual identify him, her,
2: their so. I love that Consuelo, because it really brings in the definition of race or kind of thinking about it as a social construct and moving it to that area of the notes so that you're you're primed as a listener to to hear that, to hear the aspects of a social history. So I really appreciate you commenting on that. And I wonder with Jackie in this particular case, um, we sometimes know that uh, presenters or anyone who's a learner or trainee can sometimes also ignore aspects or kind of maybe just not mention aspects of someone's life, a patient's life, that have been impacted by structural racism. Do you have a way of helping your team kind of understand the concept of structural racism and its impact on health and how that might play out with the, both Jackie as the attending or Jackie, the learners that are working with Jackie, kind of how do you help your teams understand that concept?
0: Well, I'll start with, it, I think it's really difficult to do like on the wards in a setting where to have this conversation quickly. I think we have to have ways of communicating these, you know, these concepts. And often for many people, shifts in how they think about these terms, it really requires time to process. So, you know, we have been in the last, you know, 18 months or so taking advantage of of this heightened awareness of structural racism as an opportunity to try and build more content uh, for learners, for faculty, for leaders um, that allow us to really talk about these to talk about racism and acknowledge the different levels or kinds of racism, and also allow people to reflect on what race means to them. When was the first time they uh, recognized um, their race or someone else's race um, and and start to have those conversations in those ways. And so sort of moving, you know, sort of inward to outward, you know, structures, systems are ways we think about it. But sometimes we actually will start with structures, especially for leaders. Um, Sometimes they can wrap their minds around the structures easier than, you know, thinking about it at the individual level.
2: I also love the way you put that starting inward and doing that self-discovery work or self-awareness work and then moving outward um, as one potential approach to it. Um, I wonder when you're Uh, attending or kind of in a teaching position with learners, do you bring up um, kind of the conceptualization around structural racism or even doing some of that inward self-discovery work like you just mentioned? When was the first time that that race meant something to you or you kind of pointed that out for yourself that that's part of your identity?
0: Yeah. You know, I like to start with the when did you first learn about, understand race or even recognize your own race? In part because I think for most of us, race is something that we actually were never taught. Like we didn't have a class that said, you know, this is your race. This is this person's race. This is what it means. We just, you know, lived and started to accept it. And we accepted different people's versions or beliefs about race and incorporated it into the way that we think about it without being prompted to do it, without, you know, considering how it might be wrong. Uh, and so part of what, what we're dealing with now is trying to help people unlearn something they never really consciously learn. And that is so deeply, you know, embedded and integrated into how they think, because it was not consciously done, that there are remnants of it everywhere. So now we have to actually get people to accept that you know their views, their perspectives, their beliefs about race are inherently flawed when they're not considering how someone else identifies themselves, or how race as a construct that uh, in the United States, of course, is really built on this um, bipolar you know um, scale of black versus white, um, and the, again, the, the anti-black that's inherent in the white. So, you know, again, trying to have those conversations, I think a lot, having people reflect on where they started from, and how they don't even really know sometimes where they started from, um, gives them space, I think, to think differently about it.
1: I like that framework. Um, yeah, trying to take a step back and, and kind of have broader perspectives as you were already encouraging us to do earlier. Um, in, in kind of thinking about that and t- taking a step back, do you have some examples of, um, things that medical educators should be aware of in terms of medical history around racism. Um, you had a recent publication and you quoted, the nobleness of medicine and nursing has long provided a cover for healthcare professionals to distance themselves from racism. And I thought that was really powerful. And, you know, we, we try to think of ourselves as this noble profession. Um, but really, there are many instances when medicine was very promoting of racist, you know, the racist society that we are part of.
0: Right, and not only were we, you know, reinforcing, you know, um, these racist ideologies and white supremacy, but we were also, you know, providing um, the rationale to keep people enslaved. You know, uh, we talk about uh, Samuel Cartwright and, you know, his—I didn't even know if "work" is is too generous to describe, you know, what you know what he did, but you know, just providing this. Um, information from what you would presume is a credible physician to say that you should keep um, people, black people, people of African descent enslaved um, for their own good. um, Because, you know, all of that hard work is getting more oxygenation and blood to their brain and helping their lungs, you know, expand. Uh, It's for their benefit. I mean, how horrific is that? Uh, you know that that again, we still have remnants of that in our practice of medicine today um so you know i I try to 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 give examples also of how we cannot possibly be as objective as we think we are, if we're depending if we're dependent on textbooks and cases that were created by people who do not fully understand the experiences of marginalized and minoritized people. So uh, again, if we continue to elevate ourselves into what I think actually often in in medicine is that non-racist, non-discriminatory, we say we treat everyone the same. That's, we are so important, noble Respectful of everyone, that we treat them all the same. And of course, we already know that that's problematic because we are not all the same. If we treated everyone the same, then only some people are going to benefit, other people are not. Some people are going to be harmed. Um, And so, if we are truly going to live up to our nobleness, then we have to accept um, the the really broad variability uh of of the human uh of humans in general uh so you know we if we treat everyone the same, we have to be able to say that's not good, that's horrible. Why would you do that? We're not all the same. don't do that stop i mean i think that, I think that's the the those are the kinds of things sometimes I will give examples that are not specifically about race. So if you have children or if you have siblings or, um, you know, sometimes the concept of the family is, you know, did everyone in your household get the same thing? You know, if your parents, if you have siblings, if your if your parents treated you and your siblings the exact same way, you all went to the same school, you all did the same after school activities, you, you all had the same tutor or no tutor. Um, you all ate the same things. Would that be, uh, the best for each of you? No. So, so again, taking that step back to acknowledge, and and I think we have to make sure that we're doing this in a way that doesn't make race, at least, uh, races that are not white seem bad. That we also have to acknowledge there's so much richness and human variation. That we've missed because we have not acknowledged different cultures, languages, backgrounds, that we're actually, we're running at a deficit ourselves by not fully appreciating the human variability.
1: Yeah, well... Thank you for outlining that. I think kind of coming back to our case, if if Jackie is feeling passionate about trying to improve some of those kind of, as you mentioned, that in healthcare, we shouldn't be treating everyone as equally uh, or shouldn't be treating everyone equally. We should be treating them with more equity. Um, How do you think Jackie might dive into addressing some health disparities within her role as a hospitalist? Um, Do you think something like a QI project or a noon conference to increase awareness might be beneficial? Well, I would
0: first want to know if Jackie, does she feel confident that she's capable of leading any of those things by herself? Is she capable? Is she prepared? Does she have expertise in this area to lead a QI project, to you know, give a lecture or teach her team? Or does she need more um, education herself? Does she need to bring in someone else to help her teach? Does she need to identify someone in the community uh, with the lived experience? of having, uh, you know, experiences with racism? Where's the content expertise to really do that work? And I think this is really so important right now because what I'm seeing at many different levels is there are people who are so excited and, and impassioned about this work and, you know, they want to move quickly. Uh, and when when I say you need content area expertise. They're like, okay, well we'll just get started now. And I worry that, you know, some of this get started now is actually going to make things worse. Because um, again, these are concepts that are so deeply ingrained that we didn't know we were learning that our biased perspective is on them um, are are going to influence others especially if unchecked. And so, I, you know, I I'm, I always push that this is the kind of work that needs to be done in teams. And you need at least one other person with a different perspective who is bringing sort of their view to this. And, and, there, and there has to be room for a conversation
2: there. Consuelo, I love that because I think that only a team can take on something like trying to help people unlearn what they consciously never learned. Like that is a huge... That's just a huge take a take on, you know, like that's an incredible ask and I think something that many people feel confident and ready themselves, but I think would be even more optimized as a team, like you mentioned, to make sure that there's lived experiences from people in the community, that there are a diversity of health professions experiences, if we're talking about specifically in medical education, um, that it's not just one person doing the work.
1: And in thinking about teams, um, it's important to have diversity on your team to be able to find those people to work with. Um, If Jackie's invited to participate on a residency interview committee and she wants to try to help recruit a diverse group, specifically those who are underrepresented in medicine, how might she encourage this?
0: Well, so Jackie's being invited to participate I think she might ask questions about you know, who else is on the committee or who else is involved in the process. And I, I think we're a setting like that where we're often trying to increase the number or percentage of people from marginalized and minoritized groups who are entering the profession or are going to be a part of, of the institution or program. We don't always actually have enough people with those Experiences to be a part of the group, and and also I think it's important that you know we don't continue to overburden and overtax people from marginalized and minoritized groups. So I think I would I think Jackie should be asking the question about you know who's on this committee or who's involved in the search um, that has expertise, knowledge, training as it relates to understanding you know, some of the barriers and challenges that people from these groups might face. I'd want her to be asking questions about the process, you know, how are individuals identified? You know, what's the process for increasing the candidate pool? You know, is the, is the review process holistic? Have we considered, you know, some of those issues that individuals were most impacted by structural racism might be experiencing or, or could have uh, impacted uh, their ability to meet some of the indicators that other people have or, or, or have some of the opportunities, I should say, have some of the opportunities that other people have had. Jackie's going to be asking a lot of questions.
2: Jackie is also doing a lot of self-reflection, which I think is uh, the start of the work kind of Mm -hmm. that you mentioned, Consuelo, is like, do I feel ready? Do I feel confident? Do I have the experience? Where is my team? You know, there's a lot of self-reflection that's happening for Jackie. I'm
0: happy for her.
2: (laughs) We are too. Well,
1: Yeah. Should we move on to case two? Yes, we have a case two from Cashlack. Wanda is an early faculty member who applied to an internal grant funding, read Protected Time, to support her passion projects around creating diversity curricula for residents. She aims to help trainees assess their unconscious biases and consider how to address them in the clinical learning environment, as well as reviewing strategies for addressing microaggressions. She asks you as her faculty mentor if there are some examples of similar curricula or if you had advice for her on how to make her passion project come to life. So how would you respond to Wanda on this?
0: Oh, Wanda, go get that money (laughs) so we can get this project started. Um, That's good. So um, I would first be encouraging uh, Wanda to tell me what problem she's solving. Uh, And I say that because um, often we are coming up with interventions or Initiatives where we have a plan to do something that we think is needed, but it's not clearly articulated what we think the outcome is going to be. Right? So, are we focusing on unconscious or implicit bias because we expect this to change interactions with peers, or are we going to improve the quality of care? For individuals from certain groups, we're we going to improve um, the patient satisfaction. Like, what what is it that we are actually trying to do? Uh, and similar to the microaggressions, like, are we talking about microaggressions in the within the team, within the workforce, within the trainees? Like, are we trying to decrease them in that setting? And if so, what are the markers of that? Is it we're going to have more retention? of staff, trainees, uh, faculty, physicians, providers from, you know, marginalized, minoritized groups? Uh, Are we going to have change in the climate surveys? Like, again, what is it that we're looking to change? What is the problem? Then related to that, what are the markers of success there? And then we need to decide, are these really the routes to get there? Because unconscious bias and implicit bias training is only going so far. I mean, there are not that many measures or metrics that we can uh, identify that really change after those kinds of trainings. So if we're, again, if we're really trying to um, have changes in patient outcomes, patient satisfaction, um, changes with, you know, team dynamics, if we're talking about you know, differences in, in retention and climate and a sense of belonging and whatever it is. Uh, you know, let's make sure we have the right interventions to really get us to those outcomes. So my teams probably get tired of hearing me say, "I need you to think right to left," because I'm hearing a lot of left to right. I'm mean, "You want to do this? Do you think it's great?" but I don't know what it is you're changing. You know, what is the problem that we're solving? Uh, And let's make sure we have the right interventions and how are we going to evaluate, iterate, and are we going to throw this stuff out when it's not working?
2: I love that, Consuelo, because it feels like you're applying your researcher skills to this question or to solving this problem, and which is the first question is kind of, what is the problem? And then in that right to left movement that you mentioned, I wonder, are there other institutions, organizations, maybe groups outside of medicine that are leading in the area of, let's say, solving the problem around um, interactions with peers and colleagues, like improving those interactions in your workplace? Um, Just thinking kind of to answer your question about which problem, let's say Wanda decides that problem. Are there other examples that you look at as kind of leaders, maybe even outside of medicine on that front?
0: I do a fair amount to the degree that I can tolerate and comprehend know reading about um work happening in business sectors because I do think that um you're certainly right I you know add that to my one liner is getting pretty long I I do see myself as a researcher I tend to try and put together structures and to make sure that that there are outcomes and metrics, and we're solving a problem. I think in in business, they often do operate that way. You know, what are the things that we're trying to change? What are the goals? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, And they also do a lot of iteration, I would say. And that's something that I think also in science in particular, you know, we design a study, and we think we've got it right. It's perfectly designed, especially if we have some NIH funding, you know, then it's You know, it's gold standard, you know, might as well make a statue out of it. And when we start to implement it, it's imperfect, but we're still kind of beholden to the protocol we developed as opposed to like, you know what, this is not working. We did the interim analysis and there's no real movement. You know, um, we we still just like, oh well, we thought that was gonna be a great idea. We thought that was gonna be a great great drug, we thought it was gonna be a great training program. You know, we built it, we did this one with the community, so it must be right, as opposed to saying, you know, our goal is equity and what we're doing is not reaching that. So let's ramp up, let's, you know, get rid of some things, let's de-implement some things. Let's add something new and, and let's continue that cycle so that we can actually see um, progress.
2: To shift us back and reflect back to Wanda's situation where she's trying to think about how all of us have particular implicit biases and and how we address those. I think most of us have probably taken an implicit bias test along the way at some point in our uh, journeys as uh, practitioners or um, health professions, um, educators. And I wonder, as we become more aware of these biases and we help l- our learners identify them, are there, um, in your mind, any best practices to mitigate the impact of these biases or even taking a step back kind of best practices with more awareness to the biases themselves
0: well i mean i think there are some best practices as it relates to bias and how how to mitigate bias how to be aware of it it requires a lot of self reflection which jackie is doing um you know so you know um the humility that you need to appreciate and honor other perspectives and cultures and backgrounds, um, that that openness to doing those things, again, is so dependent on the individual, which is why unconscious bias training doesn't actually deliver that much. And I say that from the standpoint of the people who most benefit from unconscious bias training are probably the ones who need it the least. Like the you know the people who you know have these deeply ingrained biases that to some degree aren't just unconscious, you know there's an element of consciousness to these those people aren't um taking this training and willing to self reflect and change as much as they should or you know um be humble enough to accept criticism from patients and research participants and all of those things, like those are not the people who are really benefiting the most. I would say unconscious implicit bias training is minimum. Like We really have to move to anti-racism training. And how do we, you know, take apart policies, practices, structures that were developed with these, you know, racist ideologies embedded. So again, that's to the you know what is what? What are you doing, Wanda? I mean, what are you trying to do? Like, are you are again? Are you trying to increase patient satisfaction? Are you trying to improve outcomes? You know, there are probably upstream factors uh, related to structural racism that we need to address. There are probably issues with getting in and out of the doctor's appointment, and certainly more effective communication is probably important. But those are probably not. Again, that bias piece is only one element. And in some settings, I would say not the most important. I think perhaps where unconscious bias training, if people accept it, do it right, you know, are willing to commit to it, I shouldn't say do it right, uh, as a lifelong process, the emergency room, these emergent, urgent settings where decisions are being made so quickly, that's when we have the most chance to actually make a difference. Uh, with the uh, unconscious impl- implicit bias training, most of the rest of the time, and there's actually, you know, data. I think it, there's a Harvard Business Review paper that kind of talks about the different. I'll see if I can pull it up and send it to you. Uh, that talks about what works in as it relates to diversity and inclusion, and unconscious bias doesn't in this. And again, I would say nuances in the clinical space with having to make those split decisions um, in emergency settings, like that's really when the unconscious implicit bias opportunities to mitigate that are are most
1: impactful. So it sounds like Wanda should not focus much of her time on the uh, addressing the implicit bias or uh, unconscious bias training. I mean,
0: I didn't hear, maybe she's in the emergency room. (laughs) Maybe she's trying to, maybe she's trying to help make some decisions there. I don't know. I don't want to throw out her decisions without, you know, fully appreciating what she wants to do. But I yeah. have questions. Uh, no, that's helpful.
1: Um, if Wanda's goals are to try to help her learners um, have a healthy learning environment and be able to to thrive in the hospital setting. And as one of her goals with that, she wants to try to address microaggressions in the moment. Could you share your approach as an attending to a- addressing microaggressions um, when you hear one toward- directed towards a learner?
0: Oh my goodness! I wish we had um, had more time. That I mean, I think we need more training, education, preparation for everyone to to be able to do this. You know, at at Vanderbilt, our students um, you know developed the uh, uh, adapted some upstander bystander training to try and help identify intervene when these. Acts are happening. You know, I, I'll say it's probably not fair to call them micro aggressions. Um, I think they're aggressions, and um, sometimes I think labeling them as micro um, kind of gives lets people feel like they can be off the hook or less um, held less responsible for the damage and the impact there. But I do think that it's important to the degree possible to acknowledge it um, at the time that it's occurring and in the setting to also really, and again, this can be challenging and takes um, experience. There's, you know, it almost never happens exactly the way you want it to happen, but to to acknowledge and call out how the action, the words Um, are offensive and aggressive.
1: Yeah, so maybe we could, I I would love to dive into this a little bit more deeply. Um, Do you think it's helpful to talk to learners ahead of time about what their personal preferences are about how you might best upstand for them?
0: Um, That's a great question. I think it's really challenging to have that conversation when you have no idea if or when. You'll need to employ it. So I think the, the more important piece perhaps is to create a culture in which there is an expectation that if someone sees, hears uh, something that is perceived is still, you know, the, the by or upstanders perception that there was an aggression um, to call it out. And to the degree possible, also try and try not to put the spotlight on the individual. Now, again, that is really difficult to do depending on the setting. So let's say we all we, we all go in to see a patient, and the patient's um, family says something along the lines of, "You know, I don't want that." You know, insert um, you know, slight. You know, I don't want that person who. You know, has an accent to call my family, or you know, I I can't I don't want to talk to them because you know I can barely understand them, or you know, should they be here? Where are they from? Uh, you know, are you who are you allowing to come into the room? Like whatever the slight is, there um, that one is one in which we could um, say without acknowledging who we think the patient was talking about saying, you know, this is not, uh, you know, behavior we tolerate of, you know, marginalizing people because of how they speak or where you think they're from. You know, this is at Vanderbilt. We, everyone who's assigned to your care is expected to be treated with respect. And we will treat you with respect similarly. So, you know, please refrain from that kind of language. Along those lines, if that makes sense. Again, if it's a, an interaction where the patient or someone else is clearly talking about an individual or talking to an individual, sometimes it, it can be uh, difficult to, to intervene without making it seem that, you know, you don't know if the person wanted you to uh, speak up or say something in that setting. Does that make sense what do you think about it? I guess I would say like would you do you is it your perception that this is happening uh more often than people want or people don't want it to be brought up because i i I can imagine that being the case at times, but my general experience has been you know hearing from learners and you know faculty and physicians you know that they are they are looking for more people to um to jump in and intervene,
1: yeah, i I think it it's a, as you said, you know, there's so many different situations, and it's hard to prepare ahead of time. um you know in on one hand, as the attending, you know we are coming from this place of power and should should stand up and support our learners. and then, on the other hand, I've heard some people advocate that you know, when I as a white person, and as an attending steps in that kind of takes agency away from the person who has been micro guest, and that maybe they would prefer to stand up for themselves. So,
2: you know, I, I think it's, it's a very individual situation. And I think what you mentioned, Molly, and Consuelo, you as well, what brings up for me is just starting this conversation early. Like when I'm attending on the um, addiction consult team, I talk to my team and I say ahead of time when we're in the room and something comes up, I think I'm going to use your term, Consuelo, that you mentioned that it's not a microaggression, that it is an aggression. You know, what would be uh, the response that you would want from me or how should we talk about it in both in the room and afterwards do you want to debrief it how how would you feel most supported by my actions or my words and just being upfront about it cuz i'm i could assume or presume to know but i would rather have somebody tell me what they would want for me um, in that moment
0: i like the asking ahead of time but i would also say that it the experience, you know, having experienced it, and I imagine that um, both of you have probably been in situations where you've experienced uh, aggressions as well, it often just hits you, you know, out of nowhere. Like, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, this interaction with this person, I'm not going to be surprised if they say something offensive. Uh, but sometimes it just comes out of nowhere and leaves you speechless, which I'm sure my teenagers would say never happens for me. But you know, the you know, the, having that experience of of experiencing aggression and really just being thrown off, you know, there 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 have been times when I felt fully prepared to respond and react, and there have been other times where, I, like, I did what. did did that person just say that? I no. I, am I the only person who heard that? Like, no, that could not be what that person said. And so, you know, sometimes you think you want something and then when it happens um, you just respond in a completely different way. Yeah.
1: And in, in those situations where you feel like you aren't in a position to step in or just you're too, you know, you're in that in that kind of um emotional state that you're just not able to step in. Um do you check in with the learner afterward and kind of do a debrief?
0: Oh yes. Yes. I, I think that's always important to, to do a debrief or offer to do a debrief. And I think that's the a key piece is in the offer. Sometimes people are ready to do it right now. Sometimes people need time to process it. Sometimes they want to check in now and they want to do it again later. And that flexibility, I think, is really important in, again, honoring their space and their time and, you know, giving them a chance to, you know, put words together, especially, you know, recognizing the power imbalance if we're talking about an attending um, or a leader and a learner is that's the, you know, may, maybe they do need time to to um, think about how they want to tell me, you know, you were wrong, that wasn't a big deal, or I felt, you know, I felt even more marginalized, and now I think that my resident is not going to pay as much attention to me, or whatever it is they want to say. I think we have to, to um, make time and space for that. And we also have to be in that, you know, early learnings for me, uh, recognizing that, you know, learning is, you know, lifelong. There are going to be things that we get wrong, things we get right, no matter how, how much expertise we think we have in specific areas. And, and being able to grow and evolve is uh, an important part of that process
1: absolutely well um i i think that's um, you know so important definitely uh, these are hard skills and the more we practice the better we get at them um i want to be respectful of your time do you have any last take home points or um, anything else that you'd like to plug
0: um well i i i would push for really that right to left you know what are we doing in our work thinking i think uh, considering with the end in mind what we want to be the end in mind. Uh, how are we designing our work, our projects, our initiatives, our trainings? You know, what are our goals? We need to spend more time thinking about that and, and setting those. Uh, you know, our paper that we published recently is our experience at Vanderbilt and coming up with these recommendations. And, you know, I think that process of creating those recommendations really uh, led to those the learnings around how much of the history, our history, we need to still acknowledge in medicine and healthcare, and that's a part that's got to be a part of the healing process, and that's going to make uh, more room for us to actually grow and dismantle these uh, inequities, the the structural racism that's so deeply embedded in in healthcare.
2: I was about to plug that paper, if you if you hadn't, Consuelo, because I think it's a huge, it's it's just an incredible undertaking and also a really beautifully written piece, and that's your Academic Medicine's Journey Towards Racial Equity, It Must Be Grounded in History, uh, Recommendations for Becoming an Anti-Racist Academic Medical Center. So thank you for putting that out there for our folks to read and and giving us a quick summary of it, too.
0: Thank you. I wish I had more yes, time. We, we could, could talk a lot more. We have more I know. Cases. <laughs> but this is such you a know, big topic. I want to and... know what Jackie and Wanda are going to do with their, <laughs> uh, with their projects and we ideas. We need to invite Jackie and Wanda need, back. You all yes. have to give me
1: an we update. We will. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So I would say um, my take home from from discussing this with Dr. Wilkins is um, that we really need to kind of take a step back and, and in thinking about structural changes or um, initiatives that we might want to pilot in terms of reducing racism in medicine to really think about our specific aims and to almost use a research framework and think about iterative uh, steps that we can take to try to make things actually move forward rather than just kind of having a didactic
2: on inclusive teaching or a didactic on um, implicit biases. I agree, Molly. I think that her Dr. Wilkins mentioning that implicit bias training is really the minimum or the floor of the expectations and we need more structural changes is, is paramount. I think uh, she also highlighted for me kind of that we are helping to people to unlearn what they consciously never learned and that framework or that context to any DEI work is really helpful for me and was really um, just an incredible moment. So really thanks to Dr. Wilkins for sharing that with us. So this has been another episode of the curbsiders teach our mini series on
1: teaching in medicine, get your show notes at the teach.
2: We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsettersteach at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. And, of course, to Claire Morgan of Natterly for helping edit our audio.
1: A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All
2: you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoybein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasnowska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.